This is the new way we work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor Kathleen Davis. We're in an era where employee fulfillment and purpose are essential, but have management principles caught up? Today's episode was recorded live at the Fast Company Innovation Festival in New York City. There, I spoke with Rachel Kornberg, the executive director and founder of the Family and Workers Fund, and Sarah Kolnick, the executive director of the nonprofit Good Jobs Institute. We talked about the science behind what makes a good job, how that meaning has changed, and why getting employee satisfaction right is so important right now. A good job as a topic can feel kind of nebulous, like you know it when you have it, you know it when you don't have it. All of us here are really privileged, I think, to kind of take for granted a lot of the things that make a good job. Rachel, I know that last year the Families and Workers Fund put out a statement that kind of laid out the three pillars of a good job. Can you explain those and explain, like, why this is important, why we're talking about this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, I just want to thank you for dedicating a whole episode of your podcast to what makes the job good. It's interesting, you know, we don't talk enough about this when we talk about our economy, and yet it is so close to our hearts in this country. At the end of the workday, at kitchen tables across the United States, people come home and like, what's the question we ask each other, right? Honey, how's your day? Um, It's basically this nationwide routine around talking about job quality, how your job is good, how it's serving you, how it's not, where you're struggling. And yet we really haven't had a clear definition and framework that's been kind of broadly understood and used and and well-researched for a long time. So that was exactly what we set out to do. And we wanted to be really rigorous about it and also very inclusive. So we brought together with the Aspen Institute a very diverse group, business leaders, policy leaders, frontline workers themselves, labor unions, uh, educators, all to really talk through what is a simple, clear way to define what makes a job good. We also went deep into the research, including some amazing research that Sarah and her colleague Zainab Tan have put out. We tested the definition with employees, and ultimately we landed in a pretty simple and intuitive place. So a good job should enable you to get by, get ahead, and have a say. Um, And to put it in sort of slightly more technical terms that, you know, came from the research, it should provide economic security, economic mobility, and equity, respect, and voice. Um, We were really delighted that actually 250 leaders and organizations from Fortune 500 companies to labor unions to policy leaders signed this definition. So it's the most broadly supported kind of definition and statement of what makes a job good. Um, And I'll say one of the really interesting things about it it actually impacts all of us. Like, yes, you know, your job may provide you economic security, but we found that this category around equity, respect, and voice is really top of mind for people across white-collar jobs as well. And that's great. And those are exactly kind of what we were talking about before we came on, like the things that a lot of people take for granted. Like if you have that economic certainty, if you're paid well, but then do you feel included? Do you feel respected? Do you feel that you have a voice? And Sarah, kind of on a similar vein, I know the the Good Jobs Institute has a framework around good jobs that consists of, it kind of like breaks it down even more, consists of nine factors that start with things like having a living wage, having predictable schedules. I think that's something a lot of us take for granted. 
and then kind of build on that to things like motivation, which is something that we talk about on the show a lot. Can you kind of explain how you think about what makes a good job and kind of how those things build on each other? Absolutely. So we were so thrilled that Rachel and her team brought together so many people to make this definition. And so ours is part of that. Uh, We look at how jobs meet people's basic needs and their higher needs. So basic needs that gets to, are you getting by? Are you getting ahead? So every company that we work with, we help them do a living wage assessment using the MIT living wage, wage calculator. We look at schedule stability. Are you giving people adequate hours? Do those hours change every week? Are they able to build a life around the job you're offering? We look at career mobility. How many people are you promoting from within? Can you grow in this organization? How do your wages grow with tenure? You know, we worked with one convenience store and they were starting people at $12 an hour. I interviewed one woman who'd been there for 17 years. She was making $13 an hour. There was no movement. There was no increase for her. So we, we help companies do that. And you can look at so many important stats there. You can disaggregate by gender, by race. You can really get into some of the equity issues that you talk about in that wide community definition. And we look at respect. And I love that word. I think it's so incredibly important for what makes a good job. Uh, There's lots of ways to measure that. It's hard to measure. One thing that we help companies do is really try to look and see if they're setting their teams up for success and if they're really respecting their team's knowledge and judgment. So we work mainly with companies that have traditionally lower wage jobs. And people are in those jobs are often really disrespected at work. So we help companies look at their operational execution. Are your teams able to succeed every day, be productive, really succeed in front of customers? We look at their customer satisfaction. You all have been reading about how hard it is to work in retail, right? Customers are just angry and frustrated. Are you, as a frontline worker, able to advocate for your customers, answer their questions, shine in front of them? Do your companies set you up for that? So we we really help bring all of these different metrics together, your employees' experience, your customers' experience, and the operational sort of execution that's happening at your company. If all three of those are, you know, fantastic, you've got great jobs that help people, you know, every day to feel respected. If you're missing even one of them, you've got to dig in because something's gone wrong. So there's so much there I want to get to. And I know like my next question was going to be about managers and, and their role in it. But thinking about that, because I think I've been thinking about it as like the, was the Maslow like hierarchy of needs and like, okay, I have a predictable schedule and I have, I make a decent wage. Now I'll care about motivation, but it's not, I'll get this and then I'll get that. Like what, you know, what you're speaking about made me think about a story we've done about school paraprofessionals that really loved their job. Their job ticked those boxes of meaning and purpose but they made no money. And there was a woman that's like the teenagers make more at Target than I do working here. And you know, the other thing when you were, you were speaking is the customer service part. So like if you're a boss and you're like, I want to make sure they're paid well, I want to make sure they have predictable schedules, I want to create an inclusive environment, respectful environment amongst my employees, how do you manage people who don't work there, the customers, that kind of mistreatment? They're coming into this space and retail and restaurants, call centers. How many people have been on a call and you're frustrated and you take and you're it out? shouting at the yep. poor call center rep, right? So there's so many things that companies can do. You do have to invest in people. And so that's what we do at the Good Jobs Institute. We help companies think about real strategic investments in people that are going to help them because pay is not the only thing, but if you're not being paid enough and you can't pay your bills, you can't focus at work. You can't be great. You can't take care of your family. That is not a good job. But then we also help companies look at the way they design these jobs. So 
What's the work? What are the tasks you're asking everyone to do? How are you empowering people to solve customers' problems? I think customers get frustrated because frontline workers are often not empowered to solve anything. You've all been waiting in line and there's a problem ahead of you and the cashier has to call a manager and the line is getting longer. It's not that person's fault. It's the system's fault that, that a company has built that doesn't show, again, trust and respect for their team's judgment. So it's about investing in people in really strategic ways. And then we also help companies say, let's design the work so that even if your customers are disrespectful, A, your teams are more empowered to solve their problems, and B, they feel more confident about themselves and, and can sort of bounce back from some inevitable challenges when you're in a frontline-facing job. That's such a good point, because now I'm thinking about every time I've ever been frustrated with a customer service person, and I think the thing I always say is, I know this isn't your fault, but this is a really bad policy. And that's, you know, it's like, you have to bear the brunt of your employer's bad choices. You're the punching bag. Since we're talking about what managers can do, let's dig into that a little bit more. How managers, you know, middle managers leaders, companies themselves can help create those good jobs and kind of realize those things. Sarah, can you explain the good job strategy and kind of how a little bit more on how like companies can meet each of those needs? Yeah, absolutely. So the good job strategy is a mix of really strategic investment in people and four operational choices that the very best companies make that leverage that investment, that de-risk that investment, and then again, enable them to build the system that works for everybody. So we work with companies from 35 employees to hundreds of thousands of employees. And when they're looking at making investments in people, it's a lot of money for them. Whether you're a small business or you're one of the biggest businesses in the world, $200,000 is a lot if you're a small business. $100 million is a lot if you're a large business. So we help companies think about how can you most strategically invest over time to really support your, your teams to live a great life and at the same time. How do you design work across your organization so that every single day when they show up at work, they're doing work that matters? So we work with you know, HR leaders to look at wages and benefits. We do a lot of work with operations leaders to look at sort of how everything is set up in a company, but we also work with every department. So this is a whole company, systems view, really fun, innovative way to do business. So if you are a retailer, your marketing team determines a lot of the work that your frontline teams do. We worked with a family-run grocery store, 30 stores, and they would have 1,000 price changes per store every week, and some of them were for a penny. So you're that frontline worker, and you're going through a million different things and changing a penny? That's not value-add work. That's not good work. That's not respectful of you, right? So we look across departments um, at companies and help them build different systems. It's a lot of fun, and for leaders, I think it's incredibly exciting to be able to think in a different way. Can you tell me about the good job scorecard? Is that something that people, that leaders can actually like kind of score themselves and figure out the, and figure out those things? Absolutely. So that, that goes to what I was talking about in terms of how you define a good job. We've got a scorecard online. Check it out. It's got employee metrics. It's got customer satisfaction metrics, and it's got whatever the most important operational execution metrics are for your company. Look at them together, and it starts to help make that business case for good jobs. Um, which is often, you know, again, hard to make because you can see the cost of increasing wages. You can see the cost of increasing benefits and hours. The benefits are much more diffuse. So we really want companies and leaders to start thinking differently. You've teed me up perfectly because what I was about to say is much like DE&I, 
good job, employee fulfillment, these sorts of things can feel like, oh, it's a nice to have, but it's not a, a must have. It's not essential to the, the bottom line, which is like always irks me. It's like, it's so important. Can either one of you talk about why good jobs and all of these elements of a good job are so good for companies too? Absolutely. So again, we work with frontline service industry companies. So retail, restaurants, hospitality, call centers, senior care, healthcare, anybody where your frontline workers are the ones who are seeing your customers every day. So how can those jobs not matter? Jim Senegal is, is a friend of the Institute. He's the co-founder of Costco. And he would spend, when he was CEO, 200 days a year in stores. Why? Because that's where the customers are. That's where his teams are. That's where you make money. So when you know, we were working with executives, we helped them build out a business case. And we think about sort of three concentric circles. The first one is, if you've got great jobs, you're lowering your cost of turnover. So turnover is a great proxy for good jobs or bad jobs. And we see really high turnover in some of these industries, 100% turnover, 200% turnover. That means your teams are changing every six months, every 12 months. You don't have the same people there. And it's expensive to hire and train and get people to base productivity. But that's the smallest cost of bad jobs. Then if you're offering better jobs, your teams every day are delighting your customers, building loyalty, driving revenue, driving down cost, all through great operational execution. So we sort of help companies think about what that looks like. And that's not even the biggest sort of bubble in the business case for good jobs. This is an innovation conference. If you've got 100 or 200% turnover, how can you innovate? All of those magical things that you're coming up with at HQ, all of the new products, the new services, if you're in a service industry, it's your frontline workers who are executing that. And if they're leaving every three months, you don't have anybody to execute this big vision. They are the innovators and the executors. And so your competitive advantage is in those frontline workers. They're going to help you adapt. And my goodness, what did we learn from COVID? They were the ones who were there every day. And they're going to help you differentiate for your customer. That competitive benefit of great jobs, hard to calculate, incredibly important. When we talk about high turnover rate, the most obvious thing is exactly what you said, like the cost of hiring, the cost of like all of that. But then there was the thing that we were, you know, I was going to start this with what do we like about our jobs? What makes our job? I think I have a great job. I think you both of you have great jobs. What do we like about our job? And it's always the people and the, you know, the, the relationships. And I say it a million times, like you don't quit a job, you quit a manager. And when you have a hundred percent turnover, you don't have relationships with the people that you work with. You don't trust the people you work with. You don't even know the people you work with. They're probably not going to be there tomorrow. And, you know, you make a great point about innovation, but it's also about feeling safe and respected and included, you know, at work too. And I would add to that, you know, we are in still a historically tight labor market. There are one and a half job openings per unemployed person. Some employers might think, you know, I've got high turnover in this industry. That's just the cost of doing business. You really have to question that now. This is a, a war for talent completely. And the companies that are really able to retain talent um, and attract new talent, but just being able to retain your talent gives you a huge competitive edge right now um, and has for the past couple of years. And we've, we've really seen that deliver clear value. I'll also mention in this vein of employee engagement and productivity and innovation, 
There can be times where I have seen companies really tie a job quality strategy to a very clear bottom line. So I'm thinking, for example, of an apparel company that really wanted to reduce waste, common goal, right? And instead of taking a strategy that was actually focused purely on waste, they realized that this was actually a good jobs problem, that people weren't motivated to fully follow some of the processes that were there to reduce that waste. So once they implemented this strategy, that's actually a direct cost savings that accrues straight to the bottom line. So I think you can find these really clear kind of dollars and cents return on investment, but it's got to really matter for your business strategy. So it's sort of like, where are your pain points? You know, what are the ways that you think that's about one thing, but it's really about your people investment? That's really interesting. And that's also where we're seeing now a lot of the DE&I conversation go is to tie it to ESG and to tie it to, which then to me just speaks to kind of the larger purpose. It's not like we're going to be sustainable and care about the environment and care about these things because it's a nice thing to do or because it's a good like PR thing. It actually ties into, and I wonder if either one of you have thoughts on this, like how those kind of bigger goals and bigger purpose of your company can tie into employee satisfaction and meaning too. Yeah. I mean, when employees feel a sense of purpose and a strong connection to their job, they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more innovative. They're going to solve problems. We see this especially with the younger generation. I mean, really arriving at the workplace at their first jobs and demanding, you know, a really high standard of conduct, a high sense of purpose and seeing that as as a given um, in a way that we may not have seen to the same extent with future generations. So I think the focus on corporate purpose and its connection to good jobs is here to stay. I always think of that like every job can be connected to a bigger purpose and a bigger meaning. Like what way is your company contributing? Like if you just feel like you are a cog in a machine doing a thing and clocking out, you need that connection. You need that that purpose, really. So we've talked about what makes a good job on the individual level, companies themselves, how they should think about it. Let's kind of take it out a step further and look at the kind of the larger system that's required to provide good jobs and what can be done in this public policy level. Well, this is an innovation festival and I probably shouldn't say the word federalism, but I'm going to say the word federalism. We have federalism in this country and that means, you know, we don't have a lot of consistency in what we're asking companies to do. And actually in some cases, we're not asking them to do things. There are just different incentives. And I think ultimately what it comes back to is how can government reward companies that do really invest in their people, that do really want to focus on good jobs, One example I would love to share, um, Travis County, which is home to Austin, uh, recently, you know, it's going through a construction boom. So much of the country is and, and definitely Texas is. And there was a pretty big backlog of, you know, zoning and permitting applications. Stay with me. I know this sounds really wonky. <laughs> the question was, you know, how do you prioritize? Um, and in construction, time is money. And you, you've got to be fair about it. There's got to be some process from the government's perspective. So ultimately, what they decided to do was to provide expedited review and review fast. So get to your approval faster if you're a developer if you meet a set of good job standards. So we know that the construction jobs you're providing, they're good for the community. They're good for our families. They're in line with our goal. So it was a voluntary certification, similar to LEED, which I think people are familiar with and have seen the impacts. And ultimately, you get to go time faster if you meet those standards. So it's exciting because it really was a something very innovative for government to do. And it was a win for government. It was a win for the workers. And it was a win for companies that could get to approval time faster. So that's 
I mean, I never would have thought of that. That's not where <laughs> I thought you were going to go. That's, and, and certainly I don't think that, you know, something that, that other people think about. And on that kind of public policy level, since we've talked so much about wages, what is your thought on the minimum wage laws? And I'll see it in different states. It's like, oh, they raise the minimum wage. And then the employer's like, oh, we're raising our, you know, like to try to act like they're doing something good. Is that something that should live on the government level? Should it be a minimum wage, a living wage? Is it something that best rests with the companies? One thing that people often don't realize, especially in New York City, is the federal minimum wage, right? So the lowest someone can be paid in the country, $7.25 an hour. New Yorkers are usually shocked by this, right? We assume it's 15 or 18. And hasn't Um, it been that way since like in late 90s or early 2000s or something? It's been for stuck there for a while. Uh, yeah. One of the many symptoms of political gridlock, right? So um, do you know where the poverty line, the federal poverty line is in the country? Seven twenty-five an hour for a full-time job, if you're more than a single person, actually is below that. So we've got the U.S. government saying, here's the least you can be paid. And by the way, for most people, that puts you in poverty. So this is literally poverty by policy design, Right. So then you have states saying, you know, dang, we've got to do something about this. We can't have poverty by policy design. We want to be reelected. We care about our residents. We want to see thriving families. We want to see kids not going to bed hungry. So they start raising standards. But honestly, this probably isn't how we would design the thing. (laughs) We probably should look at what does it actually take to live a healthy life in this country? That's what a living wage is all about. And Sarah's doing some amazing work on living wage. So maybe I'll leave it to you to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, just to say the federal minimum wage is so low, but so many states and and cities have much higher minimum wages and employers are often national and they've got stores in every state, right? And they've got stores that are right on the border. So we've worked with a company that has, you know, a store in Delaware and a store in Virginia and the wages are very different and you're, you're, you're pulling from the same pool. So employees have to really think about what wage is going to allow you to attract and keep the talent that you need to serve your customers every single day. And I guarantee you that's not 725. Companies have to figure it out for themselves. But when we use the MIT living wage calculator, $15 an hour, which of course, you know, we've had the fight for 15 for a long time, $15 isn't a living wage in, in much of the United States. So, you know, this is really, it's, it's a, definitely a policy issue, but it's also for employers, a war for talent competitive issue. What team do you need to build and keep and how much do you have to pay them? We've covered that too about how the fight for 15 has been going on for so long that now they're like, no, it's actually the fight for 20. Like it's taken so long that 15 is no longer anywhere near a living wage. So we can't be in 2023 at a Fast Company Innovation Festival and not talk about this. What role does AI and automation play in all of this? Like, you know, from an employer's perspective, I think especially a lot of these maybe lower wage jobs are the ones that are being replaced by automation. How does that factor in? So look, innovation can be fantastic for workers. And I think people don't talk about that enough. It's always like we're going to replace workers. Uh, We haven't gotten the tech right for a lot of these lower wage frontline service jobs. People don't want a robot to recommend the beer that they like the most. Nobody wants that. Um, And it's actually really hard to do stocking um, when you're a robot, right? So there's a lot of things where we really need and want people and where AI and tech can help reduce dumb, dirty, dangerous work. And the best companies focus on the tech that's going to help their teams shine in front of customers. So Sam's Club has been on a good jobs journey for several years now, and they've done really smart technological innovations that are great for their customers and great for their frontline teams. And what I love about what they do is Tim Simmons, who's their chief product officer, he talks about how he needs 
tenured teams to bring in new innovation, new technological innovation. Long tenured teams, people who've been on the job for a long time, they know the job, they know why this is going to help them, they're excited to give feedback. Any kind of innovation, it's going to be ushered in by people for a long time. Let's make those teams ready to give feedback, ready and excited for things that are going to make their job better, and all of those innovations are going to land better. I love that you brought up uh, the alcohol example because this is a real story. There was a chain of restaurants in New Jersey that uh, in one confident fell swoop laid off a bunch of their bartenders and put in uh, essentially robot bartenders. The customers hated it. The customers rebelled, the workers rebelled, and they basically had to beg for the staff to come back and reinstate the human bartenders. That's a silly example, but I do think it's important to remember there is a lot of work. Many of our most in-demand, rapidly growing jobs really cannot be done by artificial intelligence. They could definitely be augmented by it, but those jobs are, you know, childcare. We were talking about our kids back at home. I don't want a robot watching my four-year-old. I mean, she'll reprogram it and get it to do something awful. Elder care, education. I mean, these are critical jobs for our society. They're rapidly growing. So I think we really need to kind of expand the conversation. There will be some people who are displaced, and we need to make sure that we, you know, approach that ethically, that we help people transition and skill for different jobs. But I don't think that that's going to be the sum total of the AI story on the workforce. I just want to underline a couple of like things that really hit me from that. Dumb, dirty jobs. Those are the ones that can be replaced. The ones that have interactions with people cannot. And the innovation, which I think ties back to the earlier thing you said about turnover, is AI is not going to come up with new ideas. People who understand the company are going to come up with new ideas. And so I want to end with some takeaways both for employees, middle managers, leaders, companies. What can these people do? What are some advice that you could give to kind of, you know, employees to advocate for themselves, middle managers or leaders to kind of address those three pillars? Stepping out of here today, if you have employees, go dig in. See if you're paying them a living wage. Understand how stable their schedules are. Look at your career paths. Really talk to them. See the kind of jobs that you and your company are offering and dig in and start to think about how you can do better. And pretty much everybody can do better. There's so many companies who haven't even looked at their wage distribution and if they're paying a living wage. And I encourage you to just dive in with all feet because this is the most inspiring thing that the leaders that we've worked with have done in their long careers. You can change the lives of tens, hundreds, thousands of people when you improve their jobs. And that's the kind of legacy I know a lot of leaders want to leave. And that's a kind of innovation that's super, super important. Oh, that's so good. You can change people's lives. Yeah, I'm going to riff on that. I think the headline is just go talk to your workforce. I would say, if you want to be more specific, take a look at the good jobs um, champion statement that I was mentioning earlier around economic security, economic mobility, equity, respect, and voice. Pull it out with your team and kind of talk through where are we strong? Like, where do we really have occasion to be proud? And where are some areas of growth for us? And we all just need to bring a real openness and sort of drop defensiveness in those conversations because this is going to be an evergreen process. It's not like, you know, you start here and then you get to the end and you're done and it's every job is a great job in your company. It's never going to be like that. It's always going to be a work in progress. And I think if people know that they have a voice in that, that you're interested in that journey, that's really what counts. That's like... You couldn't have ended it more perfectly because that's something I just say all the time on the show is so much of it comes down to just have a conversation with managers talking to their employees and having conversations and understanding each other. Rachel, Sarah, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.
And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Work is changing every day. What's the most pressing issue on your mind? Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or share on social with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen and Julia Shu with editing by Nicholas Torres. 